We're going to talk about Job tonight, wrap up the book of Job. So let me pray for that, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray that he would be our teacher tonight. Lead us and guide us, please, into all truth. And your word also says that eyes to see and ears to hear are a gift from your spirit. So would you give us that gift tonight that we might see and hear what your word is saying to us. We love you and we thank you for all these things and pray for them, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Job, one last time, unmerited suffering. So by the time we're at lesson three, I think it's good to do a little bit of review, theological summary first. God's justice regarding the treatment of the righteous is what's on trial here. God's justice regarding the treatment of the righteous is what's on trial, in quotes. The Satan's accusation is that Job only pursues righteousness because of what he gets, his possessions, what he keeps, his health. And so the Satan has said to God, you've made it worth Job's while. Take away his stuff and his health and he'll curse you to your face. Here's the point. There's no such thing, says the Satan, as disinterested righteousness. If I don't win somehow, if I don't get somehow, I won't be interested, I'm not interested in righteousness. So the Satan is proposing there is no such thing as disinterested righteousness. The question, will Job maintain he's still righteous even if he loses everything and suffers for no apparent reason? That's the question. If he will then righteousness is his most valuable possession, not his stuff or his health, and he'll vindicate God's wisdom and God's ways. If he won't maintain his righteousness, then the Satan's accusations will be proven correct. That is the theological summary of the book of Job so far. Where are we in our story? Job is righteous. We're told that in the first two chapters. He's suffering, and he's in the dark. Job does not, and you finish through chapter 42, Job never finds out in his lifetime what's going on. Job remains in the dark in this whole story. Looking through the lens of the retribution principle, remember that? You're never going to sing that song again, are you? The Christmas song. Looking through the lens of the retribution principle, his friends believe, since God is just, that Job must be a great sinner. And they've spent multiple chapters trying to persuade him that he is a sinner. Job, on the other hand, Maintaining his righteousness begins to voice suspicions about God's justice. 
So he's called for a hearing in court with God as defendant and himself as the accuser, at least the questioner. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. (laughs) Guess what? God shows up. (laughs) He's heard all of this dialogue, all of these diatribes, all of these questions, all of these accusations. Job has called for a hearing and God says, Burger King, have it your way. You want to meet? Here I come. And he shows up. I mean, listen to the, you know, we have this idea from Jesus sometimes that, you know, God would show up. Oh, Job, sit on my lap. You know, kind of pats his hair. Job, Job, I know this has been so hard for you. I'm so sorry, but there's this big thing going on back here. I really can't tell you about it, but come on. You've done so well. Oh, my gosh, no one in the whole history of the world has ever suffered like you. Right? That's what we want to believe God is going to say. What does God say? (laughs) Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. How many of you would like to meet that God? (laughs) Remember, uh, this is that God. Jesus is that God. We just see different sort of, if you will, pictures of him. He is kind and gracious and compassionate and merciful, loving and all those correct things. Guess what else he is? Holy and sovereign. Do you know what sovereign means? He's going to kind of begin to describe it. (laughs) Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. If I were Job right now, I would say, just kidding, and I would be headed for the, (laughs) I'd be headed for the exit. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must Stop. How did we get this earth we have? God set boundaries and limits, and nothing dares to go outside of those boundaries and limitations. He goes on Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. 
I mean, this is, ah! <laughs> if you're Job, God is just, it's like, poof, 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 poof. he's just punching him. Kindly, though, I'm sure. Where does light come from? And where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this. For you were born before it was all created. And you are so very experienced. I'm telling you, I'm like, Job, run. Run, Job, run. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? I have reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? He goes on and on and on and on. Can you direct the seasons? You know, can you direct the movement of the stars? Can you direct the seasons? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clods? On and on and on. He goes on like this until all the way through chapter 39 because then he goes to some animals. In chapter 40... Uh, Then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? What does Job say? I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. God says, good. Put you in your place. No, God continues. (laughs) Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right? (laughs) Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right. Put on your glory and splendor, your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then even I would praise you, for your own strength would save you. Gosh, I hope he has, you know, a seatbelt, but then there's a, a racing harness. You know, it's got the, all those straps that really hold you in. He says, take a look at Behemoth. I don't know what behemoth is, except it's a hippopotamus. Can you catch Leviathan with a hook? I don't know what Leviathan is, except it's a crocodile. And he talks about that till chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. 
I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. What does God do next? Blesses him. Something happened. There was a series of questions God asked. Job responded. Whatever God was looking for, he didn't get, so he kept going. He finally got it, and then he blesses Job. I'm going to summarize God's speeches for you. God addresses Job as if he's claimed to be a God, full of power and wisdom. Did you notice God never answers Job's questions? (laughs) I don't have to. I'm God. But instead, he asks Job 64 questions about creation, nature, and the moral order of the universe. He refreshes Job's perspective. God is God and Job isn't. What is God saying in all of these chapters, in all of these speeches? Here's what I think he's saying in the first set of uh, 32 questions. Job, how can you comprehend my ways with men when you can't even comprehend my ways in nature? Second set of speeches. Job, your haughty attack on my ways in the moral universe as if I were incompetent or even evil is totally absurd and uncalled for. God's points. First, regarding his wisdom. Job, your complaining suggests you could do better than I, but that isn't the case. Regarding God's power, Job, since you've seen through creation that I've turned chaos into order, beauty and good, can't I do that in your situation? Regarding God's character, Job, on the basis of what you do understand about me, can't you humbly, patiently, and completely trust me for what you don't understand? Let's read between the lines just a little bit. Job, my sovereign wisdom vindicates my justice and the way I deal with men. Job, trust my word and my character even when you're in circumstances that don't make sense. Job, give me your undivided allegiance. Job, the answers you're seeking are found in who, not in why. How does Job respond? There's a change between his first and second response. After the first series of questions, Job responds to God humbly and with the awe of a renewed perspective of God. But as yet, there's been no repentance. So God continues his questions. 
Second set of questions, Job's response, Job is repentant. He repents of not knowing God better and speaking arrogantly about him. He takes back everything he said about God. Though his suffering still hasn't been relieved. You need to catch this. Job repents and says, I take back everything I said. But his suffering has not changed. So what's the purpose of suffering? The three friends, it's for your discipline, meaning God is your judge. Elihu says, it's for your direction, God is a teacher. Job, you've said, it's for my destruction, God is a bully. Here's what God says about suffering. Job, your faith in me has demonstrated that Satan's accusations were false. Job... Your suffering has deepened your spiritual insight regarding my wisdom and my ways. Job's suffering had not changed, not one iota. And he says, I take back everything I said about you. In so doing, he defeated the Satan's accusations. And he learned more about God. I meet with a lot of people who hold on to God in faith in spite of not understanding. Even some of you. And Job understands that he's met God in the midst of his suffering. He didn't have to leave his suffering in order to have deeper fellowship with God. We all think, if I could just get out of this, then I would have a deeper, more intimate relationship and fellowship with God. Not true. Job found that greater intimacy and greater fellowship with God still in the midst of his suffering, as have some of you. And have and as have many others whose circumstances and situations were not changed or relieved. And in faith, they continued to cling to God without understanding. Job's suffering glorified God's name. Job didn't curse God as Satan predicted. Job's suffering vindicated God's wisdom. Why? Because Job recanted. Job said, I don't know what I'm talking about. Your wisdom is better than mine. And whatever it, why ever I'm going through this is according to your character, good and mighty God. Job recants, therefore, 
He vindicates God's wisdom and God's ways. Job agreed that God knew best and did best before his suffering was changed. And he grew God's saint. Job met God afresh in the midst of his suffering. Not once he got out of it, in the midst of it. You say, well, how do you know that? Chapter 42, verse 5. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. He caught a fresh glimpse of God that changed everything before his suffering had been relieved. We've talked about this one before, but I think it's a great way to wrap up our study of Job. How does the suffering of the righteous do all of these things? How does it glorify God's name? Because it reveals our voluntary worship as God's surrendered servant. Voluntary worship. How does it grow God's saint? Because it refines our character as fire refines and purifies precious metal. Whatever suffering you've been through, maybe it's not been great. Maybe it's been extremely great. Your character, which when tried, will result in something more precious than gold. Your faith. How does it glorify God's name? It demonstrates our motivation of love for God, not compensation. Deepens our understanding of God's person and character. It silences Satan's false accusations, and it strengthens us, turns saints into soldiers. It affirms and vindicates God's wisdom and ways and allows us to trust and rest in God's benevolent wisdom. There's an epilogue. It begins in 42, verse 7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. Job, in his confusion, (laughs) was speaking more accurately about God than any of the three friends. So what does he tell him to do? Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. 
Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 team of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. And he talks about the names. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. And their father put them into his will, along with their brothers. Unheard of in that time. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. And then he died, an old man who had lived a long, full life. It's a little epilogue here. God is angry with Job's three friends. Why? They had limited God's wisdom and ways. By saying God must act in these ways, they limited what God really does. So he requires a sacrifice of atonement from the three friends, but interestingly, not from Elihu. Remember, Elihu said discipline, God can send suffering as a teacher to keep you from getting off the track. Evidently, that is one of the ways that God does direct. He doesn't seem to go after Elihu in this little epilogue. So he asks Job, his servant, to function as their priest and mediator and pray for them. Why would he do that? Well, because the Levitical system hasn't been set up yet. We're still in the time of Jacob. The three would have had to humble themselves before Job and ask for his forgiveness, and Job would have had to forgive them before praying. Now, this is what happened to Job. I do not believe this is a promise for what will happen to us when we come through suffering. I don't believe God is going to give us all kinds of animals on the other side of our suffering. This is what he did for Job. Before, Job had 7,000 sheep. After, he had 14,000. Before, 3,000 camels. Now 6,000. Before he had 500 yoke of oxen, now he has 1,000. He has five female, 500 female donkeys, now he has 1,000 female donkeys. Before he had seven sons, now he has seven sons. Before he had three daughters, now he has three daughters. Head scratcher. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things. Kind of the same. What's different? What does that tell you? They're living with God in heaven. He has double the children. But only ten are with him. The other ten are already with God. God gave him double everything. Great 
proof that even people say, you know, this whole idea of the afterlife and all this didn't come along like till like the New Testament. You know, just not true. <laughs> Way back here. Go back even further. The Egyptians. Remember how the Egyptians buried people? What did they bury them with? Stuff. Why? Because they figured they'd need it on the other side. This idea of life after death, so to speak, has been around for a long, long time. By the time we get to the book of Job, we're being told that there are people who used to live on the earth who are now living with God. And God has doubled everything Job had. The question of this lesson, how should I respond if God calls me to distinguished service? Remember, sometimes God steps aside and calls on an ordinary saint to become his extraordinary spiritual champion on the battlefield. We just spent five minutes praying for people like this through no fault of their own. Do you understand what I'm saying? God has stepped aside and he has called an entire church to the battlefield. That is what we are, what we were, and need to be praying about, right? Let me see your heads do this. Yep, yep, got it. Ask, what can I get out of this, not how can I get out of this? What is our first desire in suffering? Even in hardship, let's not even go to suffering. What's our first desire? You're all saints. Here's what a sinner would say, that's me, I want relief, I want out, I don't want this anymore, this hurts, this is painful, I don't like it, I don't want it, I want relief. We need to be asking, what can I get out of this? And you say, well, gee, I don't know about that. Okay, here's a crazy verse for you in Hebrews. It says the Lord learned obedience through the things he, say it, what? Now, how is that? <laughs> how, how did the Lord need to learn obedience? Not sure. <laughs> I don't think there's any way. But that's what it says, that he learned obedience by what he suffered. I happen to think that that's talking about Gethsemane. That's my personal opinion. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 12? Remember, you're not allowed to forget anything. We haven't talked about Hebrews yet, but you should have read that somewhere. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. Don't be surprised at this suffering or at discipline. What is it a sign of? Sonship. God disciplines those he loves. Right? Therefore, discipline, even suffering, is a sign of sonship. This is one of the things that set Jesus apart as the son of God, if he would not have been disciplined or suffered, 
he would not have the mark of sonship. What? Thank you, Cliff. That's exactly what it means. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Ask the next time, what can I get out of this, not how can I get out of this? Continue to trust God and cling to him in faith. Be his weapon against the enemy and his witness before men and angels. In the example of the church we prayed for earlier, what is their first response to trouble? Prayer and worship. Prayer and worship. Continue to trust God. If you don't trust God, can you worship? I grant you, you could come. You could sit in the pew. But can you worship? Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't worship. Continue to trust God and cling to him in faith. Be his weapon against the enemy and his witness before men and angels. You want to know what a great walk of faith looks like? Mary, the mother of Jesus. You recall the story from Luke 1? I'll summarize it for you. Mary found favor with God. Mary embraced. Can you imagine this? Many scholars believe she was maybe 16, 17, 18. Okay, let's say people matured more quickly in those days. Okay, so she's 20. (laughs) You're betrothed. (laughs) An angel shows up one night, (laughs) says, congratulations, Mary. (laughs) You're going to have a child. What? (laughs) What is Mary's response? You who are highly favored among women. Well, that sounds like a setup to me. (laughs) Thanks, angel. (laughs) What is this? She has found favor with God. She embraces this unexpected and unknown future. You want to talk about faith. You want to talk about something inspiring. You want to talk about something motivational. Here is a young woman being given completely out of the blue, unexpected news. And how does she handle it? I mean, you know what that would be like in our day. Imagine what that would have been like 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine the words, name she's being called? Imagine the names Jesus is being called. Mary embraced, and yeah, mom and dad, funny thing's going to happen here, but it's all okay. And what did Mary do? She treasured these things up in her heart. It happened all during Jesus growing up. She embraced an unexpected and unknown future. What else did she do? She pressed through her fear. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? What does this mean? What does this look like? And yet, you get no why or how questions from Mary. What do you get? May it be to me 
as you have said. And the angel leaves her. That's crazy faith. That's unbelievable. This is rock your world. Your world will never, ever be the same. Lord, may this be to me as you intend. May I worship you and honor you with my life, regardless of the cost. May it be to me as you will. Wow. From a very young woman. A walk of faith looks like focusing on God's wisdom, power, and character. Reminding yourselves of these truths that he declares to Job through these questions. Since in creation I've turned chaos into order, beauty, and good, can't I do that in your situation? You remember Genesis 1 through, well, first, few, first couple chapters there? What's happening? Lots of chaos. What did God do? Turn it into order. What else? Good, beauty, right? Isn't that what he did? Since in creation I've done this, can't I do that in your situation? Well, uh, you could, but you won't. Right, that's how we follow that. And on the basis of what you do understand about me, says God, can't you humbly and completely trust me for what you don't understand? If I'm good and good all the time and what you can see, aren't I still good and good all the time and what you can't see? Have I changed? Focusing on God's wisdom, power, and character, and then drawing near to him. The example we looked at last week of Jesus drawing near to him in the garden. How should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? By embracing it, rather than seeking to escape it. Knowing that we may not get why on this side. But it's not about why. It's about who. And in continuing to cling to faith in God, you are his weapon against the evil one and his witness, not only to men and women around you, but to the angels in heaven who see you offering voluntary worship, though you have not seen the Lord. You offer him voluntary worship, loyalty, and allegiance. You are testifying to who he is by how you live your life when it gets really hard. Let me leave you with one final illustration that might connect with some of you. It really connects with me. You know what this is? Yeah, there's a title. It's a rock tumbler. What do you, how does a rock tumbler work? You, you take ordinary rocks. You take some water, a little bit of water. You take some grit of different uh, coarseness. 
and you put it into this drum, and what does that drum start doing? And what do those rocks start doing? Don't raise your hand. Anyone ever felt like you're in a rock tumbler? Your world is turning upside down. You're rotating. There's no solid ground underneath you. Everything is moving. All you're doing is crashing around into things, and it's gritty. It's really gritty and really messy. Anybody ever been? Don't raise your hand. Anybody ever been in a rock tumbler? What happens to those rocks after a while? They're transformed. What does the rock tumbler do? One simple thing. It reveals what God already put into that rock and saw in it when no one else saw anything. And he lets it show to others. God already knows what's in you. He knows what an ordinary looking rock you are and I am. And yet he puts us in the rock tumbler with the right number of things, the right grit. He tumbles us around. We go topsy-turvy with no solid ground under us. It's very messy. I don't even know which way is up. And then at the right time, he holds me in his hand and he says, Bill, this is what's in you. I knew it. I wanted everyone else to see it too. Transformed by the rock tumbler. For next week, read Exodus 1 through 4. And we will begin the book of Exodus next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for Job. We thank you for the greater Job, our Lord Jesus, who being completely and purely righteous, suffered more than any human being has ever suffered and did it with joy because he was right in the center of your will. That's a frightening thought, for, at least for me. Thank you that you've promised to never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you are trustworthy, that you are good and you are good all the time with what we can see, what we do know about you, and what we don't know about you and what we can't see. You are good. Thank you for loving us, for setting your affections on us, for calling us to yourself, for showing us Jesus, showing us our need, for calling us to him, calling us by your own name, adopting us as your sons and daughters, and giving us an inheritance that the Lord Jesus earned and has set aside in heaven to share with us because this was your good plan. You are good. We love you and we worship you and only you this evening. And we pray for this week that we might just walk a little bit more in your footsteps this week than we did last week. We love you and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.